Welcome to this special edition of Full Prefrontal, the Big Picture series. Coupled with our extensive library of conversations with leaders in the fields of neuroscience and cognitive, educational, and social psychology, in this special series, Sucheta plans to dive deeper into the science of executive function, including managing oneself and one's cognitive resources in order to achieve goals. Throughout the Big Picture series, we'll explore the difference between knowing and doing. She will share real-life examples and day-to-day tips for practicing intentional strategies to help you, your family, your team members, or your students build competencies in executive function to lead to stronger, more resilient relationships, sustainable communities, and fulfilling lives together. And now, here is our host, Sucheta Kamath. Right. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. This is our big picture series. Today, we're going to talk about raising organized children. Boy, I wish I had this podcast to listen to when I was a kid. And as usual, I am here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, Sucheta. How are you? I'm fabulous. How are you? I'm doing great. So let me ask you this. When I say organized, what does that mean to you, being organized? To me, it means to have an organized space. So an organized desk, it means to have a clear understanding of my action items or my schedule for the day. And it means to have a, a, a my outfit planned and organized and, and hanging up where I can access it to get dressed. Got it. So you're referring to a lot of organizing your space, organizing your time and organizing your tasks. Yes. Correct. And there's one invisible thing element to organization, which is organizing your thoughts Mm -hmm. and organizing your ideas and organizing your conceptual roadmap for self. So those are invisible aspects of being organized. So that's why we are talking about being organized and raising organized children. (laughs) So again, going back to this definition of executive function, which is executive function is the bridge between knowing and doing what you know. So I know that scissors need to go into drawers but I leave them on the table. So then I'm disorganized. (laughs) I know that I need to create a new folder if I'm starting a project. So all the research that I do, I drag it into that folder. So when I need it, I can find it. But I do some downloads on my desktop. I have some in folders. I have some in, you know, like um, maybe my Google Doc. Then now I'm disorganized. So organized and disorganized is a myth because it certainly kind of um, has a heavy focus on external evidence of organization. And as I said, your workspace is clear and clean, then you are perceived to be more organized. There are people who have lots of clutter on their desk, but they know exactly where everything is. So that's a really important thing to know that does neatness mean being organized? And that's not true. Second thing is, as you mentioned, you know, like timely, there's a really important to, element of being organized is knowing how long things take and actually getting things done in that time frame. And so if you don't know, then that can be a problem or if you're not getting things done in a timely way. And the third thing, as you were mentioning, is, is that, you know, having my task list, you know, like, do I know where I'm going? Do I know my big picture? You know, like, what I need to accomplish this uh, by the end of this week or by the end of this month. So kind of having some milestones or goals uh, that you can achieve by having some system that allows you to achieve it. So that's the big picture of being organized. So the question really is that how do we prepare our kids for 
21st century education. So in my opinion, and my 20 years of clinical experience tells me that in 21st century, kids need to become more focused. They need to become more effortful and intentional, and they need to develop this ability to collaborate with the world and live in in a community where they are able to exchange ideas. The next thing is to communicate their needs and wants and desires and mostly use those great communication skills to form alliances or resolve conflicts or get their goals understood by others so they get receive cooperation or get themselves out of trouble. And lastly, a 21st century learner needs to be adaptive. That means, and we spend a lot of time talking about that resilience. That means how do I change me based on my knowledge of me, based on my needs, and how do I kind of keep up with the demands? And in order to have that preparedness, that's why we need organization. Well, this adaptive idea means strikes a chord with me. I, you know, when things in my life are disorganized, it's most of the time a result of external forces that I can't control, right? So things are going to happen. You're going to get busy. You're going to get distracted. You're going to feel sick. Something's going to happen. You're going to get out of sorts. What I've learned is, hey, let that go. It's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about that. You can't be perfectly organized 100% of the time. But then you have to have a process by which when you do have a chance to catch your breath, that you can reset and you can get things reorganized. And then you're, then, then you're good, right? Yeah. I mean, you bring a very good point that you just talked about something, which is the internal mechanism. So let me just summarize the value of organization, you know, being organized. So what is organizational ability? It's your ability to categorize, sort and categorize information using certain organizational principles. And what are those organizational principles is to see similarities and differences in things and be able to connect ideas because of common thread that they have. And this ability is a very internal cognitive ability. So for example, if I am, I have to buy eggs, I have to deposit a check, I have to pick up my prescription, I have to get my clothes from laundry, and I have to, let's say I have to make a phone call to my sister. Now, when I have these five things to do, and if I'm leaving my house, I have to now kind of really consider the route that I'm going to take and proximity of things so that I can actually have a map. So if I go to pick up the eggs because the idea of purchase eggs comes to me first, then I am going to go to the grocery store, which is furthest from my house. Let's say grocery store is the closest, then I should be doing that uh, upon return. And because then I won't be stuck in traffic because there's less traffic when I'm close to my house because I can take inner roads. But let's say the furthest uh, place is to deposit my check because I have to go to this particular branch, which is the headquarters. I'm making this up. And so when I make a plan that organized thinking is literally taking my five things to do and sorting and organizing them into categories so that I can actually connect them into uh, a big picture plan. And so the value of organization is if you don't have organization, if you don't have that foresight and understanding of connectivity between ideas, then you are going to waste a lot of time. Another example comes to mind is in, with respect to children, that children are asked often to write papers or write an essay or write a paragraph or organize their desks or, you know, take notes or all those things or require organization. So, for example, if I'm listening and my, my teacher said 10 important things, how do I decide which important thing I need to carry forward into my notes? And that requires a great understanding of self. That means 
hmm, what is my memory level? And how important is this detail? And how well would I remember it three weeks down the road? So when somebody uh, evaluates that, that's when the person is kind of taking a judgment. And that's why you can see organized thinking influences decision-making. And the last thing I'll say about, so one, as I said, it makes you efficient. That means uh, uh, your organization connects to your management of time. Second is your, it makes you a good decision-maker. And the third thing is organized thinker organization really aids retrieval. That means you can remember things because you're organized. So I'll give you an example that if you were in a meeting and you were sitting and they served Mexican food and it was a buffet and you actually served yourself and you dropped the plate. Okay. And then it was a little bit of a mess. And then you had to, everybody had to pitch in and that meeting proceeded after that little, little blip that you encountered. Your retrieval of whatever content happened in that meeting is going to be now associated with you dropping that plate. And your retrieval will be faster by you associating that conversation in the meeting to the plate dropping and the mess that you created. Now, I'm not endorsing that we should drop plates in order to remember better. But what I'm trying to say that retrieval works by organizing events and ideas into something that has stood out. So brain is a change detector. As you know, Daniel Lefton says, change detector means what? It detects any aberration. And so when we go, organization gives us a stream of consciousness that gives us predictable aspect of our event, daily events of life or daily uh, life events. And then there's an aberrant event that stands out and that's what acts as an anchor in memory. And that's how we retrieve information. So does that make sense why organization is so important? Oh, absolutely. No doubt about it. So going to this idea that why should parents now consider that the organization as an important element of daily household life is because it really it adds value to that student's ability to become independent. So sometimes I have dealt with parents who don't mind chaos or disorganization, or they even dismiss as a frivolous or unimportant thing. Or sometimes people, uh, lots of times, in fact, that I work with people with ADHD, even adults, and they complain that being organized or, or is uh, like stifling their creativity. And I completely object because being organized, in fact, frees up the time to do something called mind wandering when the creative ideas make connections with each other. So if you're not uh, organized, then you do really don't have free time. And then your mind is always wandering. And so you have great ideas, but you never execute them. We talked about <laughs> multitasking. And, and when you're multitasking, I am completely unable to be creative or innovative. You got it. So multitasking is fragmenting attention. So yes, it is extremely hazardous to attention. And just a, big, a quick connection between attention and organization is whatever doesn't go in cannot be organized. So if you're not paying attention, it's not going in. <laughs> yep, yep. So let's talk about how can we help children, okay? So in order to change the child's ability to be organized, you need to really understand some myths about an organization that you may be harboring and you need to change your mind about that. So first of all, first myth I would like to kind of bust for parents or even educators that if I am organized and I'm using systems, then automatically by being in my household, my child will become organized. Being in my classroom, the ch child will become organized. And that's a myth. Organization reduces chaos and creates some structure, but that structure will not be inculcated or adapted by the child unless and until the child engages with it himself. 
So if I uh, drop all my clothes on the floor uh, when I go to uh, take a shower and then my mom comes and puts all my clothes into the hamper so that my room looks neat, then I have never really learned the process of what it means to pick the clothes and put them in hamper. And so the parents, a lot of times, are really insist on things looking under control and they are taking shortcuts. So I say that, of course, that your child should not be told to put the clothes in hamper. In fact, instead of just telling the child, supervise the child putting the clothes in the hamper. Supervising means the child gets the experiential learning and you get to give feedback regarding exact expectations. So that's how we can do it. So the other myth that parents need to kind of double check is allowing more time and demonstrating patience will lead to self-correction. That means, you know, three days I watched you put those clothes on the floor, never putting in the hamper. And I was so patient with you in hopes that fourth day you'll pick it all up and throw it in the hamper. And you never did. And so, in fact, then parents come to a point where their patience then turns into complete lack of emotional management because they're they are now really mad that the child did not uh, take advantage of their patients and, in fact, is taking advantage of their patient quality. <laughs> the third myth that I would like to bust is silly mistakes can be prevented by being careful. I love the advice that constantly comes the uh, child's way that just be more careful. Why don't you be a little bit careful? Well, being careful requires incredible executive function, which means supervising self, knowing what I'm, I was supposed to do, ex- uh, checking the expectations and checking your own quality of work and then fixing yourself. What if your child is not capable of doing that? The last two are really that that there's a little bit of a, these are more traditional, old-fashioned ways, I would say, parenting, which is pain of failure will lead to learning. You know, I'll let you fail and maybe the pain will be so painful that that will teach you a lesson. And that doesn't happen to be the case for people with executive dysfunction. So pain of failure will not lead to learning. And the last one is the stringent expectations will lead to methodological compliance. That means just because I'm strict, I'm running a very tight ship, I will get greatest cooperation possible. So when I don't get that greatest cooperation, then you are being defiant. And then suddenly uh, the parenting shifts, attention shifts from teaching skills to reprimanding. And then that becomes a the complete spiral downwards in managing the kid. Well, you blew my mind busting all these myths. Uh, the one that makes me laugh, that made me laugh was this idea of allowing more time to lead to self-correction. As a child, and frankly, today as an adult, if I have limitless time, I am much more disorganized because I think oh, I have time to get something done. Whereas if I'm under the gun, I'm much more focused and organized. And I, I imagine that's part of what you're talking about. You know, thinking about this, I mean, I, I'm. What can parents do here to help the child become, you know, more organized? I mean, is is there is there a process? Is there a system? I'm, I'm sure you can share us uh, share some tips. Yeah, let me start with my first tip. My first tip is get your uh, household organized, and I'm not really saying that get it completely neat and chaos free, but most often used things keep them on the forefront, and less often used keep them behind the scenes, like get them in the background, get them out of sight, because we really want to improve management of attention. When there are a lot of distractions, it is burdening attention. So it's really, really important to kind of create an environment where there's less strain on that attention system. The next thing is really in organized household is having systems that means place for everything and everything in its place. And 
really this this practice begins when children are very young. And what I mean by that, practice putting things away is a behavior which can become a reflex if there's adequate opportunity to rehearse that skill. So if you have a place for shoes, then then child needs to practice putting those shoes away. Now, I wouldn't take 100 things and make it a, you know, calamity Jane kind of situation in the house where the child is putting away things and is exhausted. But I would take top five things that you need to see put away. And then the rest of the things the child fails to put away or not put away, then parents can assist. Because remember, children are just in the process of learning them. But these five things, and they, these five things, once the mastery and it becomes habitual, then you can move on to the next five things. But I think starting very small is really, really critical. Then the, the other aspect of organized household is labels. Labeling things so that the child knows where things go is really, really important. And as I said, most often used should be on top or in the forefront and less often used things should be in the background or you know in the in terms of drawers they should be not on the top but the bottom and then last suggestion for organized household is a scavenger hunt so on a weekly basis this can be really fun so let's say you have a melon scoop do you even know Todd what a melon scoop is <laughs> I, I actually do oh you do okay yeah. that's I, I always find that I, I had you know, growing up in India, we never had a melon scoop. So <laughs> when I came to this country, I like I'm obsessed with melon scoops. But anyway, I have two of them in the house <laughs> because uh, I have. I was just fascinated. How can you have a perfect round watermelon ball? <laughs> 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 so, anyways, so a scavenger hunt look uh, looks something like this: that at the um on on the weekend, once the, there's a system where things go belong to and everything that belongs to that system is put back. But on the weekend, the parents can do two things. One is they can take out five objects, um, less used drawers, you know, and then put them on the counter and the child has to put them back. Or they give a list of five things that the child has to retrieve. And it is a really fun game. It's a fun way of kind of accessing information and leading to independence. So if you have a teenager, this would look like a how, how where would you find, let's say, a spare key for the car? Or where do we keep, you know, printer cartridge? It could be, where do you think I keep um, extra socks? That kind of thing is really critical because once you know how to access information and you know how the information needs to belong to that place where you access it from, you are now creating navigation and a navigational path and you're doubling up with experiential learning. And that's when you're strengthening that skill and ability. Well, I can vouch for the power of an organized household. In my mid-30s, I was really struggling. I was frustrated with my career. My first marriage was failing. I, there was a lot of chaos in my life. And it was at that time that I embraced minimalism, uh, this extreme notion of simplifying and removing the clutter, both physical and, I learned later, the mental clutter. Once I, I embraced those principles and, and things got calm then I was able to clear my mind and focus on how to get out of that life rut. So it all started with organizing the household. It changed everything for me and enabled me and gave me the power to actually affect good long-term change in my life. That's a great story. And I think it's what's so sweet about that is I think it, it kind of brought calmness. You know, you're talking yep. about this stress reduction. It's really like the upfront time that we put into getting systems created 
is um, feels a little bit stressful, but I, I really believe that it's it's in a critical element to bring a joys that can last longer. And I don't know if you have come across Marie Kondo's oh, yeah. book. <laughs> and I can't believe it. Like three and a half years ago, I came across her first book, which is about organizing and infusing joy in your everyday life. And I just loved it. And I completely revamped my house using her method. And now three years later, I can see she's like, uh, infiltrated the airwaves, so to speak, and and Netflix, and she's coming on the Colbert Report. You know, like uh, she's she's all over the place interviewing. So she's a woman who talks about this incredible organizational method, which I highly endorse. And my kids read the book, my husband read the book, and we all, as a family, one summer, completely decluttered our house. We learned how to fold using Marie Kondo method, and my kids went to college, and they're still using it. One is now graduated, and still using it in his apartment. It's it's absolutely fantastic. So yeah. this brings... Oh, go ahead. No, no I, I read that book several years ago as well. And I'm, I'm thrilled that she's suddenly uh, changing things and, and all the all the goodwill centers around the country are now overloaded with stuff, which I think is great. <laughs> and we talked about this uh, before. It's not just the physical clutter. It's removing the mental clutter. And that then, that is where the real true power comes in. But it starts with the feelings that come from removing the physical clutter. So great stuff. Yeah. And you know, that uh, connecting to that, that mental decluttering. And so I'm going to introduce the second tip, which is the strong routines. And so I like to define routine as predetermined sequence of events that repeat themselves. So there are three components to this, which is predetermined. That means it's not a random. It's you have already, you have intentionally decided a sequence that you're going to engage in. It's a sequence. That means there is a component and hierarchy that you can't do three unless one and two are been done. And that's a part of the routine. And the third is it repeats itself. That means what you do on Monday should be done on Friday, must be done on in January, must be done in February, must be done in December. So there's that sense of continuity. And if one can imagine and defines routine that way, then one can build their life around it. And this is the part that, uh, Todd, you just mentioned, which is a mental process. In order to have a routine, you need to have a conceptual framework of, of what are the things that I'm going to execute or engage in in a sequential manner every day, every day, and every day. So that requires a lot of development of thought. And so how can parents do this? Is first is to develop a routine in writing. And, and I highly suggest to parents that they must anchor their child uh, using four routines. One is called a morning routine. Second is the homework routine. Third is the evening routine. And fourth is the end of the day routine. And so when I say, again, a routine is a predetermined sequence of events that repeat themselves a morning routine is five things that every morning the child must do. And so this is how the time pressures work. So let's say you, you have five things that you do every morning. And if you woke up late, then one of the five things goes away. But there are three things or four things that never go away. And that's how you decide prioritizing. So you actually have an intentional plan. So let's say if I always brush my teeth, I, I have breakfast, I change my clothes, I review my planned agenda, and then I have a little discussion with uh, my husband. That's my routine, let's say. Now, if I'm in a rush, then I'm not going to... So the few things that go is, do I not take a shower or do I not have a discussion with my husband? And so my, my discussion with my husband can be postponed because I can have that discussion if uh, while I'm driving or once I arrive at work. 
But let's say if I'm meeting new people, I better be take a shower and put on good clothes. If I'm going to work out, then it's okay to not have a shower. So your your contextual decision making becomes easier if you have this developed routine. And so what I suggest to parents that make make a written list, run it by your children, collaborate with them, and then laminate this checklist. And then every morning, the child needs to cross off every item and these five things. I tell kids and parents that it takes around three weeks. For three weeks, parents need to memorize and supervise, supervise and memorize and watch the execution. And after three weeks, then you can begin to see some changes. But it takes six weeks for a routine and a new skill to kind of take roots. And then you need to do something called problem solving, which is I didn't put an alarm, so I didn't wake up. So my five things on the um, morning routine, I did none of them. (laughs) I did one of them. And so that's a problem. How am I going to go around it? So, you know what, mom, could you please wake me up? I'm really having a hard time getting up. So when do I ask for help? When do I help? And when um, is, uh, so it doesn't stay, I mean, it doesn't stay parent-centric. It becomes a collaborative effort together. Well, I'm a I'm a strong routine guy. My whole life is governed by routines. I'm a big checklist guy. When I travel, I have a 70-item checklist that I follow to get ready for my trip. Now, I imagine 70 so, really? I yeah, honestly, it's 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 quite funny, but it it makes that process not stressful for me. Now, I imagine you get a lot of pushback from people who say, "Well, what happens to this person when the routine's broken?" And I'll submit, I'm curious as to your comment that the, knowing the process, having a discipline of developing routines enables you to adapt and solve the problem when you get knocked out of the routine. Yeah. Yes. Very, very good point. I think, you know, children are developing these skills. So they, first of all, are not coming from a place of value. That means they don't know why this is really important. They also may view it as optional. That means, oh, it's great that mom and dad like this but they're not going to kill me if I don't. (laughs) But once you set that in stone that this is really critical, then I think then there's kind of a buy-in and then that buy-in needs to be there. But in order to kind of work collaboratively, you also need the parents to follow certain routines also. So one of the things that I say that you really can't, we cannot call out a problem in a routine unless the routine was routinized. So like, for example, if you're the kind of man who has 70 items on his checklist and then he skipped five and I can then say, okay, now you can problem solve because you actually have 70 items on your list that you have carefully curated, you follow them diligently and you actually have a some experiential muscle memory that you can say, oh, wow, I, I kind of slipped on these five things. But what I, f- I find often that the parents and children are often in, in a chaos, they're constantly problem solving, but they're not problem solving a routine. They're solving problems they ran into because they don't have a routine. <laughs> so I think that's where I'm, uh, I see people making a mistake. So I wouldn't go to problem solving unless your m- routines have been routinized. And what I mean by that, that you have to live that life of following the routines that you create. And only then, you, until that muscle memory builds You can't say, oh my God, now I broke away from a routine. It's okay to break away from a routine, but if you broke away seven times out of nine, then it really wasn't routinized. Well, amen to that. I can tell you, you do develop muscle memory when you have these these routines. I mean, I I can vouch for that. And and that is a source of of comfort and peace and strength. The next tip, Todd, I want to share is a home audit. This idea of taking stock of good habits and implementations. 
you know, that that parents need to really do an audit. So we often do audit of our refrigerator, for example. You know, we are looking at what stuff to buy, what is in the pantry, what's in the fridge, what's in the freezer, what's in the garage freezer. <laughs> so I feel that people are pretty good about doing the audit for their um, refrigerator, but I haven't seen people doing an audit for their house. That means maybe on a monthly basis, people need to walk around clipboards in different rooms and saying, are the daily used item replenished? Is there any uh, stocks that are running low? Are the systems working? If you're supposed to put your books back on the shelf, is the shelf empty? Do you have enough space for new books that you have gotten? You're supposed to pack your bag and take it. And uh, is your bag clean? Like, uh, are you kind of, you know, airing it out? You know, do you, uh, why do you have a banana peel at the bottom of your backpack? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, you know, just doing a general audit. So giving yourself a fresh start on which you can build some of these routines and structures that are going to hold your daily execution. And so I feel that a lot of times the parents are not, uh, they're flying by the seat of their pants and I don't blame them at all. I used to be that parent. I'm still flying by the seat of my pants. But I do think that if you have executive function challenges or children with executive function challenge, then you need some specialized attention that you need to give to those children and their needs. Because unless and until you do that, there is not going to be great success. So in order to do that a home, home audit, there needs to be a, like a family calendar. There needs to be a, a weekly family agenda that is, uh, I mean, I am a big um, calendar person. I have a system that I teach people, but using different color uh, markers to have different family member represented in different colors. All activities get congregated in one space. You have now, you know, modern technology allows you to share calendar even electronically, so you can do that as well. And then lastly, I think in the home audit is to take pictures and video record videos. If your child is not cooperative, if your child is a room is not in at par with golden standard, then in that audit you need to point out just like the when you are audited, right? What's the job of the audit is to point out things that are not working and the idea is to get them fixed, but this idea is not applied only to the children. It's a family endeavor. And the last habit I will say is uh, household rules and uh, collective community. You know, how do you bring build a community where every family member has a job? There are rules and expectations for every family member. There's a technology hub and tech rules, and there's a demand on code switching. So let me just quickly explain what that looks like. And I'm sorry, we don't have elaborate time. I can dedicate uh, another episode for this process. But mainly what I'm saying that the standards must be stated and they must be explicit and they, the expectations must be, must be made clear. Once they're memorized and implemented, they need to become implicit and they are something that the whole family is operating on. And those standards must be critiqued and evaluated. And so making a household rule, like we as a family uh, will not watch uh, TV late at night. We as a family will not use Internet beyond uh, 12 o'clock or making this up. But we as a family will not do this until this is done. So kind of creating some type of rules so that everybody's held responsible and there's an elevation of standard in the family. Every family member has a job and 
So if somebody has a job of an auditor, that person is going to find problems with the system, not just uh, with the with the way the kids are keeping their rooms, but the parents, the way they are keeping their rooms. And it's a really fun thing that if you give a child that job of being an auditor, that it can, can be really great fun. And the, the, really, this modern day and age, I think it's really important to promote organization planning and critical decision-making skills, we need to address the issue of technology. I highly suggest to create a technology hub where all the computers are kept at night for charging, all the cell phones are kept, and they're not in your personal bedrooms, particularly children until end of high school. I feel it's really, really strongly that they should avoid that. And using some type of software that kind of alters the screen at night so you're not exposed to a certain type of a light. Uh, it's really critical that we do all the things that can promote good health and uh, sleep and real restfulness. So what, as I'm saying here, that being organized is a skill and that skill, just like any other skill, requires practice and mastery. And this mastery can be attained through great effort and diligent focus. And it's really urgent and important that parents do their bit uh, at home because then this organized child is arriving in school prepared to appreciate teachers' organization. Mm. Lots to think about. And so, Jada, I could probably almost guarantee that if a family was disciplined in doing these audits and setting these rules, these family rules and guidelines, those are probably things that these children are going to then do in their own household down the road. I I have to assume that's something that would that would transfer to the next generation. Cool stuff. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. On behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thank you for listening today. And we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.